Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheck. We all know the litany of names of the victims of police shootings, of which Tyree Nichols and Anthony Lowe are simply the most recent. The report out just last week about the Louisville Police Department and Breonna Taylor is another profound and disturbing example of the impunity of police officers. But why is there not more accountability? Yes, we need police. We need better trained and more aware police. But isn't accountability a key part of improving any organization? So why is there not more of it in policing? The answer lies not just with the police and police leadership, but with our legal system, the courts, state and local governments, and elected officials. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Joanna Schwartz. She's a professor of law at UCLA, where she teaches civil procedure and courses on police accountability and public interest lawyering. Her writing and research about police misconduct, qualified immunity, and local government budgeting have been featured in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. It is my pleasure to welcome Joanna Schwartz here to talk about her new book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Joanna Schwartz, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a delight to have you here. This is one of those issues that no matter how much attention gets focused on it, and no matter how many times there are police shootings, the situation doesn't seem to get any better. In fact, as we look at it through the lens of just the past 10 years or so, the situation seems to get progressively worse. Talk about that first. It continues. This 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 experience that we've been having in recent years of our computer screens and cell phones lighting up with horrifying videos of people being killed at the hands of police um, is something that that we have seen periodically throughout the history of our country um, with newspaper stories originally um, and congressional reports. Uh, and now, of course, with with these videos that remind us that misconduct, abuse, violence is happening at the hands of police and and probably with the advent of uh, cell phone cameras and body mics and body cameras, um, the evidence is is coming to us more and more rapidly. Um, but this is a problem that has that has long existed. I do think actually over the past 10 years, there has been a great deal of attention paid to this um, to this issue of police misconduct. I actually think that there are important changes that are happening. Even if you look at Tyree Nichols' case and killing, and the fact that video was released almost immediately, the officers were prosecuted and fired almost immediately is very different than what we would have seen 10 years ago, I believe. And that's really a product, I think, of a lot of organizing and advocacy um, at the at the state and federal and local levels. But it also remains true that we are continuing to be confronted with these uh, killings and the the deepest issues that that lead these killings to occur certainly haven't been solved, not even close to it. And isn't it a function of place? I mean, as you say, certainly with the Tyree Nichols killing, there was a much faster reaction. But if that had happened somewhere else, it might not have been the same reaction. The inconsistency 
seems to be part of the problem, especially given how much exposure there has been to this issue as a result of these videos that you're talking about? That's a great point. And I wrote an article a while back called Civil Rights Ecosystems. And what I was trying to get across in that article is that constitutional protections and protections from police abuse are so regionally variant and can differ not just across states, but across counties. And it depends so much on um, what the environment is, what the laws are, who the judges are, who the advocates are, whether there's a civil rights bar that's engaged uh, in advocacy in this work, what the state laws are regarding disclosure of documents, and all of those things tied together uh, can really influence whether a case, uh, an incident uh, is is revealed, whether the video is revealed, whether it can become um, this kind of uh, case that that really grabs national and international attention or not. And then there are those places like Vallejo here in California, for example, where these things happen repeatedly. Yeah, Vallejo is a, is a city that I dedicate a whole chapter to in Shielded. And it's really, it's the chapter about suing cities. Um, Vallejo, California is their police department is one of the most dysfunctional, I think, in the country. Um, between 2010 and 2020, the Vallejo Police Department killed more people per capita than any of the hundred largest law enforcement agencies in the country, except for St. Louis. And not only did officers repeatedly kill people, the same officers repeatedly using uh, excessive force, fatal force, the officers would celebrate these killings by bending the tips of their badges at bars and backyard barbecues. And none of these officers were disciplined or fired. In fact, many were promoted. And I tell the story of Vallejo in my book, in part because it really illustrates how poor the legal system is at getting at these dysfunctional police departments, the way that the Supreme Court has said you have to prove a local government's responsibility for misconduct by its officers, is to compile a long list of proof of prior constitutional violations that the chief must have known about. And proving that in, in, in uh, practical terms can be very hard, even in a place like Vallejo, because their internal affairs investigations processes are so faulty that none of these shootings, none of these killings are found to be out of policy, are found to be unlawful. And so there's not, to the court's view, an adequate pattern of proof of prior misconduct that can be the basis to hold the city accountable. How much of the problem lies in the way these cases are always about or, or at least the high-profile ones, are about civil rights. They're about race. And and to the extent that those issues are, are part of the broader discussion about police departments, it seems even more difficult to get at the root cause of what's wrong with both the police and the legal system. Well, I think that any understanding of our law enforcement system in in our country has to contend with issues of race. Uh, In the South, law enforcement agencies were born from slave patrols 
Um, in the Southwest, the Texas Rangers was killing Mexican and Mexican-American and indigenous people at the rate that the Ku Klux Klan was killing black people in the South. And those kinds of um, racial disparities unquestionably continue today. Study after study has found that black and brown people, uh, Latino people, indigenous people, are disproportionately stopped, arrested, searched, assaulted, and killed by police. But I think it's also, in, in addition to recognizing the, the importance um, and gravity of those data, it's important to recognize that police violence and misconduct can affect everyone and, and anyone. Um, and in my book, I intentionally tell the stories of people who really reflect a wide range of experiences in our country, people who are Black and Latino and Indigenous and also white, people who are uh, executives um, uh, and people who don't have jobs, people who are homeless, uh, people who have uh, steady, <coughs> excuse me, steady jobs and, and lives, people with no criminal history and people with long criminal histories. And, and part of the goal there um, in telling that wide variety of stories is to make clear to readers that this is a problem that affects everyone. And to think of it only in racial terms, I think, misses out on that broader perspective. Talk about this idea for our listeners that may not understand of qualified immunity for police. Qualified immunity is a phrase that has gotten a lot of attention in recent years, right. particularly after the killing of George Floyd, but it's still difficult to understand. And so <clears throat> qualified immunity is a protection for officers being sued for money damages. It does not relate to criminal prosecutions. And what qualified immunity provides um, is that even if an officer has violated a person's constitutional rights, they can have the constitutional claims against them dismissed so long as the law is not clearly established in the terms offered by the Supreme Court. The way that the Supreme Court has interpreted that phrase, clearly established over the past several decades, has come to mean that an officer is entitled to qualified immunity even if they violated the Constitution, if there's not a prior court decision with nearly identical facts. So it's not enough to find a prior court case that says it's unconstitutional to use force against a suspect who is surrendered. Instead, you have to find a case that the Supreme Court says is particularized to the facts of your case, meaning in practical terms, you have to find a prior court case that held unconstitutional the use of a similar type of force, be it a taser, a baton, a gun, under similar circumstances. So a person demonstrating that they're not resisting by sitting down with their hands up or lying down on the ground. And it's very difficult to find those prior cases that happen to have virtually identical facts. And, and that standard has led to a lot of decisions that are really egregious, decisions where officers have stolen a quarter of a million dollars in cash and coins, cases where officers have released a police dog on a person who had surrendered by sitting down with their hands in the air, even cases that, that have facts very similar to those of George Floyd, where people have 
died beneath the knees of officers with their um, with their body weight on their necks and backs and had their cases dismissed on qualified immunity because there's not a prior court case with similar enough facts. And is this an issue that needs to be dealt with on a state-by-state basis or on a federal level? It is an issue that could be dealt with on a federal level. The Supreme Court created qualified immunity. They could issue a decision doing away with or limiting the doctrine, although they haven't. Uh, And Congress could create uh, a, a bill, could enact a bill that made clear that qualified immunity was not a recognized defense. This was part of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that ended up not getting passed. So the federal government can address this issue, but hasn't. In recent years, um, particularly since the murder of George Floyd, states have started introducing state legislation that basically would create a state law right to sue. Most constitutional claims are, are litigated in federal court as federal claims, but states can also allow people to sue for violation of constitutional rights and can prohibit qualified immunity as a defense. And this is something that Colorado has done, um, New Mexico has done, New York City has done, and it's been introduced, um, similar legislation has been introduced in more than half of the states, but most, unfortunately, to my view, have been defeated by claims that I prove in Shielded are false, that officers would be bankrupted for split-second mistakes um, if qualified immunity was eliminated. With respect to, to bankruptcy and money, what to what extent has the fact that cities have paid out, and Vallejo is, is the penultimate example, I suppose, where cities have paid out millions and millions and millions of dollars in, in these cases, and it seems to make no difference in so many places? Yeah, so it's it's true. Um, cities are are paying out, particularly large cities, um, millions of dollars every year. Um, to the point about qualified immunity, um, it, it's the it is the cities and their insurers that are paying in these cases, not individual officers. It has nothing to do with qualified immunity that they are not paying. It's instead that state and local governments have what are called indemnification policies or statutes that require that when a person, a police officer or other government official is sued, that they will be given a lawyer and that settlements or judgments against them will be paid by the local government. This is why, not qualified immunity, um, that this money is being paid by the local governments and their insurers. You asked why it's not making um, much of a difference. I think that there's a couple of reasons why. One is, even though these figures sound quite large, In most cities, lawsuit payouts in police misconduct cases are less than 1% of the city's budget. And that's compared to a quarter or a third of the city's budget that is being spent on the police department's budget. So it's, it's a drop in the bucket. In addition, in most cities and, and jurisdictions, the payments in these cases have no financial impact on the police department itself. Instead of the money coming from the police department's budget, it comes from central funds with no impact on the department. And even in places where the money 
ostensibly comes from the police department's budget, there's not a financial consequence. So I talk in Shielded about the city of Chicago, which does have the police department pay settlements and judgments from their budgets. But when they go over their budget allocation, which happens every year, the excess money comes out of the central budget instead of impacting the police department's budget in any way. And what I learned when I talked to officials in Chicago was that that extra money is being paid, is being taken from crevices of local governments, the local government's budget that is earmarked toward uh, services for the most disadvantaged. So a lawyer for the city, a former lawyer for the city said, when when lawsuit payments went up, lead paint testing went down. Um, and so uh, the people who are suffering from these extra budgetary outlays are the people who are the most politically disenfranchised and and remarkably, tragically, also the people who are disproportionately likely to be the subjects of police misconduct and violence. Are there best case examples that you've seen cities where it it has been a significant problem that have really done a terrific job in turning it around? That's a um, <laughs> that's a, a good question. Um, I think that there have been a lot of important steps forward that have happened in a variety of of different ways. So I think that. Um, I think that there has been important, <coughs> excuse me, important progress um, in places that have been subject to the Department of Justice's investigations and consent decrees moving forward. If you look at, for example, the Los Angeles Police Department, uh, there was an extensive um, investigation, extensive oversight by the Department of Justice, and there has been research showing that that intervention really um, made an important difference. Now, I can't tell you that uh, the Los Angeles Police Department is now functioning perfectly well and are, <laughs> and are a model looking forward. Um, I don't think that that, is, um, that that is true. But I do think that the Department of Justice's interventions um, have been important um, and can be important in the future. I also think that there are examples of departments where leadership has really worked to um, try to improve the culture of the department um, and and make a meaningful difference. And there's a former uh, police officer, uh, now scholar named Neil Gross, who's written a book that's coming out um, soon uh, that talks about the kinds of changes that have happened in three small departments across the country, really at the hands of committed um, law enforcement professionals. And, and so, you know, I think that there are important um, and positive stories to be told. The Camden Police Department was in a terrible state and essentially um, started from scratch um, after, after a long series of um, scandals and misconduct, and I think have improved. But you know, none of these stories are are without multiple asterisks and qualifications. I think that that reform in these cases and and in law enforcement generally is incremental and partial. And there's often a few steps forward and then a few steps back or a few steps to the side. And and that is just the way it is and has always been with 
police reform. What can the courts and judges do in this regard? Anything? Well, I mean, courts and judges have a lot that they uh, can do. Um, as I as I talk about in the book, many of the barriers to relief that are um, put in the way of uh, that are put in the way of people whose constitutional rights have been violated are barriers that have been created by the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court could um, could absolutely take uh, steps to do away with some of those barriers. But even the lower courts, the trial courts, the courts of appeals can interpret the rules that they've been given by the Supreme Court in a way that um, that recognizes uh, the importance of these cases. I mean, as 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 much as the Supreme Court has issued rulings in this area, they've also left a lot of questions unanswered and questions for lower courts to answer. Um, and 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 even more basic than that, trial courts have a tremendous amount of discretion in these cases. I dedicate a chapter to the role of trial court judges and all the discretion that they have in allowing discovery, decisions about whether experts should testify, decisions about who should sit as jurors. There's massive amounts of discretion that these judges have um, that's pretty much unchecked in the in the process um, of judicial review. And so who is who is taking on those roles as judge in these cases, I think is is hugely important to how these cases end up making their way through the courts. And should these these issues become paramount in places where there are elected judges? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, in the federal system, all of the judges are appointed and, and they uh, tend to hear these constitutional claims. Um, but in state courts, there are some absolutely where the judges are elected and um, and they can exercise their their discretion in all the ways that I've that I've just said. I think that um, there are a lot of myths that have justified the protections that officers have been given concerns about frivolous cases flooding the courthouses and officers becoming bankrupted for good faith mistakes. And as I show in the book, I don't I don't find that any of those claims are true, but they're frightening for legislators. And I think that they'd be frightening potentially for elected judges as well, um, who may may fear that if they issue decisions that are uh, supportive of plaintiffs in these cases, that there that there could be some consequences, negative consequences to them moving forward, which is which is really unfortunate in my view. Talk about the role of police unions. Police unions are a hugely important uh, figure in the history of limits on police accountability and transparency. They've played less of a role um, in the topics that I cover in my book, although they have played a big role in recent years opposing qualified immunity reforms in state and federal legislatures. But most of the work that police unions have done over the past several decades has focused on limiting transparency and accountability in police departments' own internal investigations and review of their officers. So creating law enforcement officers' bills of rights that limit the ability 
of officers to be uh, disciplined and fired, the creation of complex and elaborate um, arbitration uh, requirements in the rare case that officers actually are disciplined or terminated that can end up meaning officers get their jobs back and limitations on retention of officer disciplinary records, transparency, public transparency about those records. And, and all of that work has really been spearheaded by police unions over the past several decades. And finally, where are we seeing leadership in, in addressing these issues? Where is it? Is it coming from electeds anywhere? Is it coming from the courts? Where, if, if at all, are we seeing any leadership in this regard? Well, I think you can see it in a number of different places. I think that there are examples of judges who are um, making strong statements about the need for more uh, federal protection of constitutional rights. Certainly, Justice Sonia Sotomayor has been an important um, a, an important voice in that conversation. But there are a lot of lower uh, court judges, meaning appellate judges and district court judges. Who have as well, including including some Trump appointees like Don Willett in the Fifth Circuit, who has been outspoken in his criticism of qualified immunity. Uh, and you can see leadership as well in Congress um, and in state legislatures across the country. And and I think it's important to to keep in mind that it is not just um, federal or federal and state government officials who are leading the charge here. There is a lot of really important work that is happening in city councils um, across this country. Um, city councils like the, the New York uh, City City Council that uh, created a um, inspector general to oversee the New York Police Department um, and local governments that are, for example, in Philadelphia, limiting the use of police in low-level traffic stops um, in Memphis where similar um a similar policy is being considered um local governments across the country that are limiting uh, the use of chokeholds and no-knock warrants and experimenting with uh using unarmed mental health professionals to respond when people are in a state of mental health crisis there is a lot of important work that has been done and is continuing to be done in these local governments across the country, and, and a lot of important leadership um, by those local government officials. Joanna Schwartz, her book is Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Joanna, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was my great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.